Lord, we are a weak people, and we are a people that easily go astray, easily are distracted. So, Father, focus our attention on you this morning. And, Lord, we are so thankful that you have not given up on us. We are so thankful that you are faithful in the midst of our faithlessness. Lord, I thank you for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and for John the Baptist and how he prepared the way of the Messiah who would come. As he said, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. So, Father, we have hope. We are a hopeful people because your Son, Jesus Christ, has come. So, Lord, we are thankful that the kingdom has come. It is at hand, and yet the kingdom is coming. We live in attention and the fact that it has already come and yet has not been consummated. So, Lord, I pray that you will keep us pressing forward and persevering and trusting you until the the day when your Son, Jesus Christ, returns. Lord, I pray that we will look forward to that day with anticipation and expectation. And, Lord, we thank you that we are a people, again, who have hope. Lord, sanctify your people this morning. Make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to our sin so that we might repent of it. Lord, I pray that you might draw sinners unto salvation so that they might trust in Christ even for the first time. Your word says that you will um, save those who call upon your name. So Lord, we know that you are mighty to save. So Lord, we believe in you. Help our unbelief. We thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Somebody once asked me, when were you baptized? And I remember the day I was baptized, it was a big deal. I was baptized on a Sunday in April of 1991. The month earlier, I was, uh, my mom and I trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in March of 91, and we were excited to do what was next. And so through um, counsel of the of a local deacon at the Baptist Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, we were advised, encouraged to follow Christ's commands to be baptized. So we were baptized together, and I remember that was a special moment in my life that marked a new beginning, that marked a beginning of following Jesus as Savior and Lord. Well, likewise, baptism is a big deal for Matthew. It is a big deal for me, but it was also, it's also a big deal for Matthew as he writes his gospel. It's also a big deal for John. John is known as John the Baptist. That's not his last name, but that's what he was known as, as the baptizer. And so we're going to get into Jesus' baptism in just a few moments. But before we do that, we are introduced to John the Baptist. Matthew's focus shifts here in chapter 3. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the genealogy of uh, Jesus coming to be born. And then chapter 2, we see the visit of the wise men and the flight to Egypt and um, the return to Nazareth. Well, now we see a transition from the birth narrative to his public ministry. So let's read chapter 3 together. If you would, would you stand with me as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word? Matthew chapter 3. 
In those days, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, we're just going to go through one chapter of Scripture today, Matthew chapter 3. There's a lot in this chapter. But right off the bat, we, we get this bio sketch and an alarming, shocking voice from John the Baptist. I know many of you have studied about John. You've heard of John. You know that he is an interesting character, to say the least. But who is this man? John was a popular name during the New Testament period, just as it once was in the United States. You may have heard someone say, John Doe or John Smith to refer to an unidentified person or to just refer to a common name. Well, our John in the text today was given a distinction with his name that coincided with his ministry, what he was known for. That is why he's called John the Baptist. While John may have been a common name, his appearance was anything but common. Matthew makes a point Sorry, a little loud. Matthew makes a point to draw our attention to his appearance. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and it says that he eats locusts and wild honey. 
I don't think any of us can say that was part of our morning routine this morning. But in a day and a time when we esteem products and foods that are all natural with no preservatives, John would have fit right in. He was doing that. He, he was uh, part of the daily natural group. But in all honesty, John probably didn't give a lot of thought to his selection of clothes or to his uh, dietary restrictions. He was a practical guy, but he was focused on his mission more than his nutrition. So where did John come from? He came from a dry, arid area in the lower Jordan Valley and was often known as the wilderness. This wilderness area might have some Old Testament implications, but our focus this morning is on John's message more than where he came from. What was his message? What did John focus on? While he may have came from obscurity, we know that he brings clarity in the ways of following God. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to know God? And we see here in this passage, there were some who were claiming to follow God, but their lives and their fruit bore a different message. And then there were those who did truly follow God by confessing their sins, believing and following in baptism. So he brings clarity to the ways of following God, and his message is centered around three things. Some say two, but I'd say three. His message is centered around repentance, the kingdom of God, and baptism. If we had to narrow it down to one, we would say repentance. And so repentance is key throughout this chapter. He clarifies what is repentance. We've talked about this before. There's a difference between repentance and remorse. And so he speaks to us about what repentance is. Well, we know repentance is more than just simply changing one's mind. And it's more than being sorry for something you did. To repent is to turn from what you are believing and doing and to turn to new actions. Namely here, following Christ, following the ways of God. D.A. Carson talks about repentance. He says, repentance is a radical transformation of the entire person. It is a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit keeping with repentance. So John wants to see repentance, not because he is emphasizing, but repentance points us to Christ. Repentance is a change of heart. Well, besides repentance, which we'll get back to in just a second, John the Baptist emphasizes the kingdom of heaven. Now, you might be wondering, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, are those two different things? Those are interchangeable. And Matthew is the only place you see kingdom of heaven, but is the same as the kingdom of God. Both repentance and the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God should point us to Christ. If they don't, then we are not representing them correctly. But the kingdom of God, as we see here, as we see in the other Gospels, has begun in the person of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because Christ has come. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about the kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom of which Christ is the sovereign, and we must be the willing, loyal subjects of it. It is a kingdom of heaven, not of this world, a spiritual kingdom. John preached this at hand, then it was at the door. To us it is come by the pouring out of the Spirit and the full exhibition of the riches of gospel grace. So how do we know the riches that Henry speaks of, this riches of gospel grace? Through the one who is full of grace, through the one who gives grace, the one who gives grace to the guilty. 
That one is Jesus Christ. So that is how we know the gospel grace through Jesus Christ. And he has come, the kingdom has come, and now John the Baptist points us to Jesus Christ through his message. Through his message as the one crying out in the wilderness. The one who's saying, hey, listen to me. Not because of who I am, because I'm pointing to the one that you need to listen to. Jesus the Messiah. So John the Baptist is important. Why is he important? We've talked about who he is, where he came from, but why is his message important? Because it was opening eyes to sin. Sometimes in my life I've been discouraged because I see more sin in my life, but then I have to be reminded that is a gift. I see my sin, so I might repent of my sin. I don't want to... Uh, be filled with sin, but when God opens my eyes to my sin, I can repent of it. Well, John the Baptist speaks plainly about sin. Sometimes when people talk about preachers on TV, I won't highlight any this morning, um, that are very popular, um, not all popular people on TV are ones that we should listen to. We need to hear, are they talking about sin? Are they talking about our need for a Savior? If they don't mention your sin, and they talk more about self-esteem, then we need to change the channel. And so, or that's pretty old, or turn it off and use your remote. I'm kind of dating myself here. That's okay. But John the Baptist speaks plainly about sin. And he points to the fact that people understand need to understand their weight of their own sin. This is why Jesus referred to John in John 5 as a burning and shining lamp. Here is a lamp, Jesus is saying, you must pay attention to. Here is a light that you need to see. In other words, they were in darkness and they did not know it. So John speaks clearly of sin and he speaks clearly that there was one coming after him that was greater. He says clearly, there is one that is mightier than I. There is one who is better than I, is greater than I, who comes after me. Well, if John the Baptist was a shining lamp, we see the one who is coming after him as the light of the world. Jesus himself said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So John was sent by God to prepare the way for God's own son, God's own son, Jesus Christ. And we see this here in Matthew 3 as Matthew quotes from Isaiah. I've been reading Isaiah during my devotionals, during my quiet time, and Isaiah is such a wonderful book as we see prophecies pointing us to Christ, as we see prophecies being fulfilled through Christ. Not only in Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 15 and other places, but here in Isaiah 40, we see the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Isaiah and Matthew use or speak of John the Baptist as the one fulfilling the prophetic word. We also see John's message is important Why is it important? Because people are not only seeing their sin, they're not saying, okay, John, you're right, I'm a sinner, I've sinned. But what are they doing? They're confessing their sin. It's one thing to see your sin and say, oh, shoot, I'm um, I'm, I'm, uh, sorry for my sin, or I see how I've hurt others, I see how it has damaged others, and I have remorse. It's another thing altogether to confess our sin. 
So John's message is important because he's pointing people to their sin, but also it's important because people are confessing their sins. They're being baptized by him in the Jordan, and they're confessing their sins. And one commentator pointed out, they are probably even confessing their sins out loud. You know, when I think about my sin, or I think about other people's sin, it's like, okay, well, I see my sin. I need to repent of my sin. I need to confess my sin. But I need to make sure nobody else knows that I'm a sinner. That would be horrible. But we are all sinners. We all need to recognize that truth. And it is good, it is a good thing to confess sin. We need more opportunities to confess sin as we gather together. Not just once a year opportunities, but as we come together. As we ask one another how our week has gone. We speak about our sin, not because we delight in our sin, not in the the fact that we delight that we've messed up, but we delight in the fact there's one who covers our sins. What does 1 John say if we confess our sins? Fill in the blank. He is faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So we must speak freely of our sin, confess our sin, because when we do, we are rejoicing in the Savior and the one who has cleansed us and covers us and forgives us and frees us to move forward, to no longer walk in sin. So this is a good thing that the people there were obeying John's message. They were confessing sin. They were being baptized But not all were obeying John's voice. Not all followed John's voice. The second section, verses 7 through 11, John gives this warning to the religious, and John spoke freely. John wasn't a people pleaser. He wasn't concerned about what they would say about him, what they would talk about the next morning. He spoke clearly and boldly based on his convictions. We would do well to speak clearly and with conviction like John does here. We must not become content with formal religion, church attendance, or superficial spirituality. We must not give the impression going to church is what merits salvation or any other religious task. You and I need to tell others that unless they repent and turn to God, they will die apart from God. This is why John spoke boldly, not because he was trying to get enemies, not because he, was, he wanted others to dislike him. And I'm not saying that you need to go around calling people you brood of vipers. That's not necessarily the, the uh, approach you need to take. So we need to speak the truth in love, but sometimes as we use that phrase, we can sometimes avoid getting to the truth. So in context and in conversation, we must speak the truth for it to be loving. So John speaks the truth. He speaks it boldly, and he speaks with authority to the religious people gathered there, and he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what does he tell them? Basically, he tells them, you think you're following God, but you're not. That's basically what he tells them. That's the message he tells them. He tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what is the implication? They're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. John makes it clear, you think you're following God, but you've not repented. Why Why can I say that? Because some in our day and time would say, John, so judgmental. How can you say that? And he would say, look at the fruit. 
Look at the fruit. I mean, we can use the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they're a general test case here. We're not talking about an individual. But here we could say with others, they're not repenting because they're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, their lives are not matching what they say. So the question that I've asked myself this week, and the question we need to ask one another, the question I'm asking you this morning, does the fruit of your life demonstrate repentance or resistance like these religious leaders? It's easy to think, and it was difficult for me to write that sentence, but it's easy for me to think, well, we're gathered here this morning, we're here to worship God, we're always repenting, not always We may be resisting God. So does the fruit of your life demonstrate repentance or resistance? These people, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they assumed they were following God because of their ancestry. John says, don't give me the line, well, we have Abraham as our father. It's like, well, that's not the box you need to check. And don't give me the the line that we we have allegiance to the law or we are following the law. We too can be tempted to emphasize rules over repentance. Now rules can be good to provide boundaries and they can help guide us in our lives, but rules in and of themselves don't change hearts. We may become good rule followers, but even in our rule following, we are disobedient if we do not love God and follow His ways. So John is telling the Pharisees, he's telling the Sadducees that you're not following God. You think you are, but you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So John tells the Pharisees, he tells the Sadducees there, he says, you might say we have Abraham as your father, but I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What he's telling them, he's like, God is greater than anything you say or do. He's able to change any heart. He's able to change any resistant person. And he's able to change their hearts to follow him. So now is the time to follow him. John again repeats his message to those that think they are obeying God. He tells them the fruit they are bearing is revealing and will bring judgment. John warns them by saying, even now, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He's saying, now is the time or you will face the wrath of God. Now is the time to repent or you will face the flames of eternity apart from God. We need to be reminded that there is an eternal hell as well as an eternal heaven. There is everlasting life for those who follow God, but there is everlasting punishment for those who reject Him. So John gives the solution to their problem. He gives the solution to today. He gives the solution to men and women everywhere. And the solution is this. Repent. Just like we see in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll hear the same thing. Repent and believe. John's message was one of repentance. And his baptism was one of repentance, preparing people for a different baptism, a baptism connected with Christ. John understood his role. He understood the fact that he was not the Savior. That's why he says, there's one coming after me that is mightier than I. His sandals I'm not worthy to carry. 
we see here in this passage, there was one who was coming later in verse 11. And what does it say he will do? The one who's coming after him, he says in verse 11, look with me in the text, it says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he is going to do something even greater because he is greater in the pouring out of the Spirit. John administers baptisms that were a symbol of purification, but Jesus will come to change the inner man, the inner woman, the inner reality as the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers. When we see these words, baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, we must ask ourselves, what is John, why does John include the words and fire? While believers will face the flames and fire, or while, let me rephrase that, while unbelievers will face the flames and fire associated with the eternal hell, believers will undergo a refining and a purifying fire as they follow Christ. In verse 12, we see one aspect of this fire. The text says, the text says that the winnowing fork is in his hand. Let's read the text together. It says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the fork that is ready to be used is in the separating of believers who repent and the unbelievers who do not. As Matthew describes this process of using a winnowing fork, he refers to the process of separating the wheat from the chaff. While this passage here in verse 12 is alarming for those who reject Christ, it is comforting for those who are in Christ. Why do I say it's comforting for those who are in Christ? Look with me in verse 12. It says, He will gather His wheat into the barn. Those who are Christ's wheat, those who are Christ's people, will be gathered into the barn when Christ returns. So there is safety, there is security for the believers who are united to Christ by faith. There's much more we could say about this passage in verses 11 and 12. But let's look to the last section, verses 13 through 17. I want us to see, as I read this chapter, as I read this passage, the one thing that stuck out to me time and again is in verse 15. In one word, righteousness the righteousness of Christ. I want us to see the baptism of Christ, the baptism of Jesus, but I want us to see the righteousness of Christ. After all, all of the scriptures, all the prophecies, all the promises point us to Christ, so why should we not emphasize the righteousness of Jesus here? So we now proceed from John to Jesus, and Matthew introduces John the Baptist earlier. Now he introduces Jesus as coming from Galilee. He comes from Galilee and he comes with one purpose. What is his purpose? Why does he come? To be baptized. I think I heard someone say it. He comes to be baptized. He comes to be baptized, but this is troubling to John because he comes to be baptized by John. John knows who Jesus is. That is clear. We see in John chapter 1. We see here in the Gospel of Matthew. And John is troubled by this request. And John seeks to deter Jesus. It's like he says, well, give me, maybe I can ask a question. Maybe I can make a statement. Maybe I can deter him. Maybe he can go elsewhere. Maybe we can postpone this thing. And John says to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. 
And do you come to me? And so it's like John is saying, we've got the order of operations wrong here. We need to change this. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, but why do you come to me? So John is clearly troubled and uneasy with baptizing Jesus. But Jesus responds in verse 15. He responds with these words. He says, Let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's like Jesus is saying, This is good. This is proper. This is right. What I'm asking you is not a wrong thing. And what I'm asking you to do, in essence, is fulfilling God's will. This is fulfilling God's plan. If I were there, I might have asked, what do you mean by that, Jesus? What do you mean by fulfilling all righteousness? But thankfully, I wasn't there. John understood because John understood his Old Testament. He understood that the righteous one has come. He understood that he is the Messiah. And there's no way John's going to say, I'm not submitting to you. And so as he submits to Jesus, he's submitting to God. And as he's submitting to God, he is fulfilling, but rather Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. Now that phrase is a, is a packed phrase, and we could say many things about that phrase. I'm just going to mention four things. When Jesus says he's fulfilling all righteousness, here's four things that come to my mind. That he is the righteous one, and in carrying out the baptism, we see his righteousness on display as the Father recognizes his Son. So we see in verse 17, the Father is going to say, this is my chosen one. This is my son. So that's part of fulfilling all righteousness. Number two, Jesus must obey every command, and baptism is one command. Number three, through his baptism, Jesus is affirming the fact that he's come to do the Father's will. Over and over, and I encourage you to, especially in John 4 and 5, Jesus says, I've come to do my Father's will. My food is to do the, uh, the work of the Father. And so over and over again, we see Jesus affirming the fact he's come to do the Father's will. So I think that's part of this phrase, fulfilling all righteousness. Number four, Jesus understands his role, even at the beginning of his ministry, as the suffering servant who came to die. This is the beginning of his ministry and it points forward to his death on the cross in which righteousness will be secured by all who trust in him. So Jesus is the righteous one and Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness as he obeys the Father. So we see Jesus carry this task out. You see him obey the command in verse 16. It says, Jesus was baptized. And immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. We don't see many times in Scripture where the heavens are opened. Maybe with the coming of the law. Well, now we see the one who has fulfilled the law. And the heavens are open to him. And we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Obviously, there's a Trinitarian picture here with Father, Son, and Spirit. But this is a beautiful picture as the Spirit of God descends on a dove coming to rest on him. There's a picture of peace, a picture of righteousness, a picture of perfection as the Son completes the Father's commands. What a beautiful picture. And then in verse 17, behold, I love that word, behold. It's like, pay attention, look, listen to what God is saying here. Behold, a voice from heaven said, 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 7. In Psalm 2, we see, we see these words. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Not only do you see the fulfillment of scriptures, we see that the Father is pleased with the Son. The Father delights in the Son. The Father recognizes in the, the Son. He rejoices with the Son. He is pleased with the Son. This is such a beautiful picture. We love the idea of something that is pleasing to us, whether it be food, whether it be music to our ears. We want to hear music that is pleasing to our ears. We want to see art that is pleasing to our eyes. You want to be a good worker that your boss delights in. You may want to be a spouse that is pleasing to your spouse. You want to be a good son or daughter to your parents. Parents delight in their children. They take delight in the fact that they have children, their sons and daughters. But above all, you and I need to be pleasing in the sight of our Heavenly Father. The good news is that God is pleased not only with His Son, but here's the beauty. God is pleased with all those who are united to His Son. He is pleased with all those who are united to His Son. Look with me in Ephesians 1, verses 6 and 7. This is, this is an amazing verse, verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. It's hard to read Ephesians 1 without reading the context. Let's look at the context here in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 4. I think it will make a little bit more sense and just show the beauty of what God has done. Actually, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Of course, blessed be God, the Father, blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ, but blessed are we who are in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption that we were not adopted, but now we are adopted as sons and daughters of God to Himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of His will. All of this is according to God's perfect, divine, sovereign will. And now verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Just as the Son was the Beloved Son, we too are blessed because we are united to the Son. We see in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So by God's grace, we are adopted. By God's grace, we are chosen, we are holy, and we are God's beloved children. That is good news. So as we think about people-pleasing, We can fall quickly into the wrong categories. We seek to please others. But as we think about pleasing God, the way we please God is by being connected and united to Christ. So as we see verse 17, Jesus being baptized and God delighting in Him, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see our own story in the fact that Christ was baptized. We see the fact that we 
are God's children. We are his beloved child, and he delights in us if we are connected to Christ. So let me encourage you this morning, rejoice in the fact that you are loved by God. You are his beloved because you are united to Christ. But let me encourage you to run to Christ. If you don't know Christ, if you are apart from Christ, if you are part of those who are the Sadducees, the Pharisees, that are looking to something or someone other than Christ, now is the time to run to Him. Now is the time to be united to Him. Now is the time to repent and to believe in Christ, if you have not already. Because, yes, this is good news. This is a comforting passage that Christ will gather his wheat into his barn. But it is an alarming, it is a somewhat scary passage if you are found outside of Christ. So let me encourage those who are in Christ this morning. But let me also warn you this morning. I don't know everyone's spiritual condition. It's easy to presume that I do, but I don't. And so if you don't know Christ, run to him. Cling to him. Let us pray.